Welcome to Bureaucrats Anonymous, episode one. My name is Paul Williams. And I'm uh, Emil Zidel. I am an anonymous bureaucrat whose opinions are not those of his employer. <laughs> yeah, my, I don't have an employer, so. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's not my department. So sorry, lady. You gotta. Bureaucrats Anonymous is the most boring podcast on the left, and so we want to talk about public administration, bureaucratic affairs, program implementation. Uh, these are all, in my mind, things that the left must grapple with if the left is going to come to power. In because our our working someday. conditions. Our working conditions are your DMV conditions. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, more more seriously, we have these movements that we that we want to contest for power, uh, and it that means being able to wield it effectively once that contest is won. And we tend to think more about the the first part of that than the second part of that. Understandably so, because. What good is knowing all about the minutiae of bureaucracy if you never actually take power? But um, you know, if we're actually you know swept into uh, the left is ever swept into power through you know a landslide election or a general strike or constituent assembly or whatever mechanism you, you prefer, uh, the old bureaucracy will be there and it will it will be many of the same people who currently serve capital. And so I think it, it I think we're in agreement that. We need to think seriously as as the left about what to do um, when that happens and how to navigate that in the in the in the period we're in now, which is where we're out of power, but but getting stronger in, in terms of uh, in terms of our movements. Right. Yeah, and the way you know, I kind of put it to some people was like, look, if you're in a big city, there are some massively complicated infrastructure and utility projects and programs and as great as your mutual aid cooperative is it is not going to make the trains run on time <laughs> you need a bureaucracy to make the trains run on time and um you know there we we will probably get into this, you know, kind of thing, more philosophical questions about like what a bureaucracy is and how, you know, how to think about it in a, you know, the context of political economy and things like that. We love reading theory, don't we, folks? We love theory. We also love praxis. You know, this other line is toiling in the bureaucracy. That's praxis. It is praxis. Well, as Yogi Berra said, in uh, in praxis, praxis and praxis are the same. But in praxis, they almost never are. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we got to pull up some good Yogi Berra quotes. He's got some real bangers out there. We'll have to find some more. Yeah, the the the, the real quote for those who don't know is is in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they almost never are, which is frankly one of the most brilliant statements ever uttered by anyone, in my opinion. Yeah. I agree. Um, uh, so the idea is basically we're going to do this something like twice a month, uh, keep it a slow and steady pace. I'm a grad student in economics at, at CUNY John Jay. Uh, and as you know, uh, Mayor Emil Seidel is mayor of Milwaukee. Um, so Just from 1910 to 1912. Right, but busy but, schedule. You know, sometimes they bring me in as a, a, a pinch mayor. Right. Um, okay, keep it up with actually, the baseball. Although actually, I, huh? I learned the other the other day that um, Tom Barrett, the current mayor of Milwaukee, has was first elected in two thousand and four. That's how long he's been mayor. Wow, that's um, getting up there with uh, uh, what's his name, the second socialist mayor, uh, who was mayor for like yeah. yeah Dan Dan Hone was mayor for a long time. So it was Emil Zeidel, uh, Dan Hone, and then Frank Zeidler. Right. Who Frank Zeidler. Um, was 
uh, still around. He lived a long time. Uh, and so a lot of people sort of, you know, millennial of the millennial generation remember him as this old guy who would come and speak at their school and things like that. Right. Uh, and as a kind of elder peace activist. And, and uh, Zeidler and Hone both wrote these memoir books of their experience as mayor. The Hone one, there was like, there was like only one printing and like, you know, you can get a copy for like $300 on eBay. I know one guy who has one who's like writing his dissertation on the Milwaukee sewer socialist right now. But the, the Frank Zidler one, I have a copy of, uh, haven't finished it, but you know, it's, it's great. I mean, the whole theme of the book is the whole theme of his like mayoralty was like, it was the 1950s and every, everyone was, you know, the suburbs were forming and, you know, white flight, segregation, racism kind of stuff. And the theme of his mayoralty was just trying to annex as many suburbs as possible yes. and build integrated public housing. And Which is good and cool. Very good and very cool. And, um, and probably, uh, you know, helped Milwaukee out in the long run by, by giving it a more diversified tax base totally uh, if you look at the, the map now um in the sort of northwestern part of the city it goes all the way up to the county line uh that was sort of the direction probably of least resistance i don't know the specific history of it but i would imagine those were the ones they were able to grab um <clears throat> but he was absolutely race baited out of office 100 race baited and red baited 100 they they literally went around saying that he was putting up billboards in the mississippi delta uh saying come move to milwaukee there's free public housing um, <laughs> that was literally like one of the kind of campaign uh talking points that his opponents used um and i think ultimately he wasn't defeated i think he retired knowing that he would have been yeah uh, that he, he would did. have lost in a very very racist campaign totally uh, and of course the reality was that it was the great migrations that had to do with with uh, industrialization in the north and escaping the conditions of the south and the same sort of push and pull factors that that drive every major human migration but you know they they turned it into a just so story that you know this this mayor who wants who wants integrated public housing is actually actively recruiting uh people from the mississippi delta uh which of course was not true right you know it, this is maybe a good episode for the future once uh once my good friend finishes his dissertation, actually, and he and his wife just had a baby too, so I'm sure he's extremely busy and does not have time to think about uh, some silly podcast. But once he yeah, finishes, I, I would, he I would be love a good person to come on. Yeah, I would, I would love to have an episode about the sewer socialists, in, in, in part because people think that because I've appropriated one of them as sort of my my persona, that I must be an expert in them, and I absolutely am not. Uh, you know, I know a little bit about it, and I, and I love the city of Milwaukee. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure he would know way more about all three of them than, than I would. Yeah, he's 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 my go to expert on those topics. Um, so anyway, let's get into some current events. Cue sound effect. I'll try and put a sound effect in here. Oh, yeah, I would love to interrupt you with a soundboard. Yeah, we got to figure out just. How to get that? Our, our, our listeners will have to use their imagination. So, in really big news, I'm sure everyone has heard about the American Rescue Plan, 1.9 trillion dollars from President Joe Biden, going out in all kinds of different directions. Obviously, the big ones that everyone loves to talk about are the $1,400 checks, which ugh, I got mine, and all I gotta say, I'm loving it. Um, I, I think I might have been just narrowly means-tested out of it. We'll see. Uh, I haven't yeah. checked yet. You got that uh, overpaid bureaucrat salary, huh? <laughs> well, look, my attitude is just just take it, take it out in taxes. You know? Yes, I am an overpaid bureaucrat, uh, but you can tax me higher. It's fine. Take it out of my paycheck. I don't care. Right. Yeah. There was a lot. There was a lot of discussion about right trying to trying to do it on the back end, but um, you know to get away from the the kind of uh, the phase out levels, and the, they did end up you know they in, ended up implementing this faster phase out where you know 
you you start the phase out at 75k and and you end it at 80k so you just like i mean it's basically a cliff right um which is stupid um so obviously there's a lot of things in the rescue plan there's a lot of money for uh uh you know vaccines and and testing and tracing and all of these things um and there's 25 billion in rental assistance, emergency rental assistance, which I'm sure we'll have an episode on. Uh, hopefully next month. Uh, there's been a lot of issues with the way that uh, the rental assistance programs have been administered across the country. Uh, you know, every city, state, region, tri-county area does it in their own different way and has a different set of rules. And it's you know, and there's some overlapping jurisdictions and things like that. But the one uh, piece that has not gotten that much uh, discussion, but I think is very interesting and very important, is the three hundred and fifty billion dollars for state and local governments. Now, does that does that include transit funding? Because there was also funding for transit agencies, which are sometimes considered part of state and local governments. But I believe most of these rescue plans have, have counted them separately. Yes, the the transit money is separate. There's a separate package. I think I don't remember the exact number this time. I think it was twenty billion. Uh, yeah, I think it might have been thirty. Uh, okay. Let me look it up while you're talking. But I believe it was thirty. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there is anything in the state and local package that would preclude a, or a state and local agency from using some of those funds uh, for a transit project if they could demonstrate that in some way that project was related to the pandemic. Um, it is uh, 30.5 billion. Okay. Yeah. In the ARP and, and it is almost entirely operating funding, which um, this right. is not a transit episode, but this is very important because until COVID the federal government had not been given, uh, had not been giving operating subsidies to transit agencies. It was entirely capital with, with a few little exceptions like, uh, like around like paratransit and medical transit. Uh, for like very remote agencies, but for the, in the main, uh, federal aid since the 70s or 80s or so has always been for transit has always been for capital work, uh, as in large long-term projects rather than day-to-day -day operations, um, with various implications. But now they are uh, providing operating funds, basically to make up for the huge loss in fare revenue from the fact that people weren't riding buses and trains. Uh, because of COVID for the past year. Right. And there was also, interestingly, uh, for the first time ever, a, a uh, some transit agency assistance in the form of monetary policy where the, uh, where the Fed uh, created this new municipal liquidity facility, which was offering basic, you know, the, the Fed typically operates on this kind of lender of last resort model where um you know if you can't if you are a, some type of government entity and you can't get a loan from anybody else the fed will be like okay i'll give you a loan you know at whatever interest rate but what they were doing with the municipal liquidity facility is uh and the mta actually got what 500 billion in municipal liquidity from from the fed uh that loan back in like june or july and this was kind of a big deal because uh, it, it particularly in the finance world, like finance people who work on Wall Street were furious about it because the Fed basically came in and gave a like, you know, two and a half percent interest rate on five hundred billion dollars, and all the banks were you know asking for like three and a half or four percent, and the Fed just money came printer in and, go burr, and the Fed just came in and undercut them, and the MTA <laughs> literally like, literally real life example of the meme. Yeah. No, you can't just money printer go burr. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, while, while ARP was being discussed and debated and all of the big Washington think tanks were, you know, screaming their opinions about, um, you know, which pot of dollars was the worst pot of dollars and, and why they should cut it. The state and local money was a really big one that was threatened to be on the chopping block. Um, and there were a lot of think tanks and 
uh, op-eds saying all these insane things. State and local governments don't need this money. I mean, obviously the the big, you know, the the uh, kind of political message line was, oh, it's blue state bailouts, um, which is you know ridiculous. You know, the the actual uh, dispersals of who needs the money the most and who is getting a lot of money. Uh, you know, I, I think it's something like eight of the top ten are are red state. You know. Uh, states that went for Trump and have Republican governors who are going to benefit the most from this. Uh, but of course, if New York and California are getting money, then it's a blue state bailout. Right, right. It, which, you know, feeds into just the worst instincts of everybody in, right. in the mainstream of American politics. You know, the, 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 the chuds feel like it's the blue states getting everything and the, the liberals get on their high horse about, oh, well, actually, we subsidize you, therefore any number of things follow which uh you know it doesn't help anybody because it becomes once again this sort of um unhelpful uh battle of cultural signifiers rather than rather than trying to uh rebuild our broken country in a way that benefits uh, the great majority right um and the other piece that was being you know Obviously, the blue state bailout thing is like more of a political message that like your your local QAnon congressman, you know, will post on Facebook. But the message right. that the, you know, uh, conservative and moderate think tanks were saying is, oh, you know, states don't actually need this money. Um, they haven't even spent all of their CARES Act money yet. Um, and they haven't even spent all of their money that from Trump's you know, second act in December yet. So they have all kinds of money, uh, you know, under the couch cushions and they, and, and like this term gets thrown around under the couch cushions, which is like this, you know, insane <laughs> way of like thinking about, about state and local budgets where like there's, you know, someone needs to, to do it. Yeah. He's, he's hunting around and he thinks he's, he thinks he's found it and it's a button instead of a coin. Right. But I, I, someone needs to do a deep dive into the psychology of of this this pathological need to equate uh, the federal government or or you know large state um, budgets with the 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 budget of a, of a household. You know, you're a family of four making you know you know a combined you know sixty thousand, and so you have to pay this much on housing and this much for gas in your car, and and. It, it, it really is a kind of remarkable, I mean, I, I understand, I guess it feels like a um, kind of folksy common sense sort of thing. So maybe that's why it became such a big meme, but uh, there's, I, I, w I would be very interested in a deep dive just like from someone who really understands this stuff about like all the different ways that it, that it's just not that the big one, of course, being in the, in the federal case that, you know, households don't print the reserve currency of global capitalism. So uh, the federal government can literally just make money appear out of thin air, and they have in the course of the past year several on several occasions, um, which naturally, you know, a family of four making a combined 60000 cannot do. Right. Yeah, th this is, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking of, of uh, people that I would like to have on as guests who really know this stuff. And actually, there's, there's a really great piece in... Uh, on, on governing, which is a, you know, publication that's, you know, sometimes has good stuff, sometimes has bad stuff. But this is a really great piece by Amanda Cass and another person who I don't actually know. Uh, uh, I'm looking at it now. It just says... Philip Rocco. Oh, uh, Philip Rocco from yeah. Marquette University. Milwaukee Zone. But Amanda Cass is this, you know, uh, great kind of commentator on, on state and local uh, budgets and, and financing uh, and... You know, a big thing she's been hitting on for the past couple of years is is state pension liabilities, and uh, you know, particularly this this concept of uh, you know the underfunded liability in in state pensions, where it's you know uh, the way the concept is constructed in the media and by Republicans who push in state legislatures uh, for all of these new rules on pensions. It's really kind of a made up concept and. For the most part, states, you know, even states with with uh, somewhat struggling pension programs, the the idea of the underfunded liability is 
is is kind of a false notion and uh you know in general states are going to be fine making their um pension payments more so than than the you know the graphs of the underfunded liability would would have lead you to so pay. so what because because it is true that a lot of large agencies that have a lot of retirees um do have to devote a large amount of their budget to paying out um pension liabilities uh you know just what they owe to their retirees right. um you know and and you know when you think about about this this discourse uh about cutting those it's actually quite monstrous i know it's a, a very common thing to say on sort of the right and the center like oh these you know greedy workers but like literally they were they were given a um employment under these conditions uh and were um basically you know sat it out through through often through workplaces that can produce real burnout, um, you know, in part because their compensation included included the promise of of a retirement benefits, um, often often uh, in instead of you know higher upfront pay that they might have got for comparable work in the private sector, right? right? For 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 all the the talk of, of overpaid bureaucrats, which I mean you know I'm I'm an over, overpaid bureaucrat, so it's in my material interest uh, to. Um, to advocate for that, but um, you know that being said, uh, one could imagine that someone like me could get a similar job in the in the private sector, which might not have uh, the same retirement benefits, but would have more kind of upfront cash. Um, and and even even if it was a bad idea at the time, this is a deal that that was made. But it does create the the issue of uh, that agencies have to devote a lot of upfront. Uh, upfront budget to um to essentially reward people for the kind of deferred compensation right for services that they've already that they already did as, as workers for that right. agency does she address um the kind of challenges well, that come with that because it does it does in some sense probably compete with uh, providing services which is the you know the the primary reason for the bureaucracy to exist right yeah um it's a good question. You know, I, I think we definitely we, we got to do a pension episode, a, a state and local pension gotta do episode. Pension episode. Um, I, I, I would be interested. I, something that I often kind of think of that it's not fully thought out. But I wonder what if you just just the federal government just took all of these pension liabilities and and, you know, on a go forward basis, standardize them so that people who are doing uh, state and municipal service just had a kind of common pension. Um, you know, maybe the old arrangements might be grandfathered in, but but there would be a new one that was right. maybe a little bit more fair, uh, and and let agencies focus on their actual service provision rather than right. having to worry about the liabilities of people who worked for them. You know, ten twenty years ago. Yeah, one big pension fund. Yeah, one I big pension fund. You know, I the mean... IWW pension fund. <laughs> I'm just imagining, right? Yeah, some. Uh, just, a little ima red just imagining, book. yeah, the the IWW, uh, you know, organizers who are, you know, uh, unionized the Burgerville uh, chain out in in Portland, Oregon, you know, managing the pension <laughs> fund. That'd be tight. They refuse. They refuse to do collective bargaining, but they will manage the pension fund <laughs> as very responsible fiduciaries. Yeah, this uh, is one pension fund that won't wobble. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, totally. We gotta we gotta do a pension episode. We'll get there. Um, so the other, the one other criticism of the state and local aid that uh, was very interesting, and there ended up being a you know, the the discourse did have an impact on the legislation, is that uh, early on, folks like uh, CRFB uh, Center for or, responsible federal budget um or committee for responsible federal budget whatever um they were saying oh my oh man oh no you can't give all these states um money because you know what will happen if they do if you do that oh they'll just go and cut taxes oh if you oh you're gonna give oh you're gonna give georgia you know 10 billion dollars oh they're just gonna cut taxes um and that's bad. You don't want them to do that. Uh, so, you know, obviously this is, you know, there is some truth to this idea that, like, 
there are some very dumb uh, legislators and executives out there who, uh, you know, do want to use this as an opportunity to cut taxes. But all of the examples that people were using, you know, I, I like went in and like checked out, you know, all there were four states who everyone was saying, oh, this state, this state, this state, and this state are going to, they're going to go cut taxes if we pass this state and local aid. One of them was Georgia, uh, who in fact had been planning on uh, uh, increasing the standard deduction on the state income tax for like two or three years. And they were finally getting it through and they're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then one legislator, you know, gave a, a comment to someone in the press and he was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to raise the standard deduction. And guess what? If we get more federal money, we might raise it even more. So, you know, this is like one legislator and he's like, you know, uh, playing tough guy. And so that's interesting. I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, the case of, of what would have happened. The other it, one it's also it's also interesting, though, that if if that really is the case, then shouldn't Republicans have all voted for this? Right. If they if what <laughs> yeah, they love right. most is cutting taxes, that's that's <laughs> always what they fall back on. Yeah, that's good. I then isn't this yeah. great? Right. Uh, like, great. We can we can cut taxes in all our states. You know, all these governors and, and state legislators should be absolutely blowing up the phones of the Senate being like, what the hell? Why didn't we get any Republican votes for this? Right. We'll see. But the, OK, so the other the other one that's really interesting, there were there were two other states. So West Virginia is one of them. And uh, and New Hampshire, I believe, is the is the third. But the fourth is Utah. And Utah has been planning for since 2017, since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act passed, uh, Utah has been trying to push through their legislature uh, this change to the state tax code, which um, reduces the tax burden on large families. Since in Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, it made a harder cutoff on the amount of benefit that you get, the amount of deduction that you get as the size of your family increases. And because in Utah there are so many giant families because of the Mormon culture, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was actually a net negative for a lot of these large Mormon families. And so the Utah legislator, leg, legislature was just like, hey, we're going to make a change to our tax code, which is like going to decrease revenues, but we're actually just trying to help out these really large families. And so everyone was using this as another example of like, oh, this terrible thing that's going to happen, uh, you know, if, if we give states uh, money. So, but obviously, you know, these are all like weird reasons and, and in my opinion, stupid, but the actual question that it brings up is, okay, fine. These states say they're going to cut taxes. Right now the package is 350 billion. What's the level that you think that if you give them this new lower amount, they won't do that? Right. Like, OK, if you cut it in half, you think they won't do it anymore? Like they all have these reasons that are completely like not related at all to to COVID. Like they've been planning these things for a long time. If you right. Cut, and if, I, if, and if, I if don't... you cut it, if you cut it to zero, they still might do it. So like what's what's the end game? Right. Like and it's a, it's a good it's also a good outcome in the aggregate. It might be sort of good and bad in, in, in specifics, but in the aggregate, it would be absolutely a good outcome. If we if we uh, centralized a lot of the things that the states do with the federal government, um, and you know part of why we have such a broken country and have have been just so laid low by this last awful year of a pandemic, is that we trust the states to do all sorts of things, on whatever theory of federalism or whatever else it is, and they've just completely bungled it and in completely inconsistent ways. Um, now, I suppose you could say, well, Trump was in charge of the federal government, and so it would have been even worse. But uh, on the whole, in the aggregate, um, part of why the federal government can be so irresponsible is that it it pawns off so many things to the states, like Medicaid. Right. And right. and you know, in in countries that function better, more of these things are done by the like why does why should you have to go get a new driver's license if you move across state lines you know and go to a completely different bureaucracy um one state right. line over 
Because right, because in New Jersey you have to check over both sh- shoulders whenever you're backing into a street parking lot, and they want to make sure that you know how to do that or like. But they don't. They don't ask you that. No, no, nobody. No, it doesn't. I've matter, moved but, to New Jersey. They don't but, ask that. They don't make you take their driving test. Right. They they don't even explain how to whether or not you tip the guys who who fill up your who fill up your 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 gas tank, which is. Right. Um, you know about this? They, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Oregon too. Same deal. Yeah, although I didn't Oregon get rid of it. Oh, they did. I don't know. I don't. Oh I, wait, I don't, yeah, they did know. because I have pumped my own gas in Oregon. I recently I forgot about that. So it's it's just New Jersey, and people who grew up there literally don't know how to do it. Like they're scared to pump gas. They don't know. Right. They don't know how. <laughs> yeah. Right. We. Um, I, I, know, need, I need. I need to. That might have actually a... been useful. Right. The 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 the, the New Jersey uh, MVD, I believe it is in Jersey, could could very easily have. Uh, you know, informed me of that when I when I when I moved to New Jersey, and uh, and they did not. They just made me go wait in line to get a new, new license. Are there are there any union gas pumpers? Is that? A... <laughs> I don't think so. But, well, I mean, maybe, but but I I would expect no because, you know, gas stations are structured as as franchises, right? So you have this this massive international you know oil conglomerate. Right, we um, need, but we then need... they they franchise out the operation, and so it's you know often like a sole proprietor or something like that. Which this is the reason we need sectoral bargaining, right? Because we need these all gas pumpers across New Jersey with all of these various different you know franchise owners to be able to yeah we we, we need sectoral bargaining so that we can require gas pumping as make work in all fifty states. <laughs> we need to expand on the success of 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 New Jersey. The states are laboratories of democracy, Paul. <laughs> We need we need a jobs guarantee for gas pumpers. Um, which, although it does it does actually get into countries that have sectoral bargaining are actually less likely to have unions that defend uh, sort of unproductive make work because they have they have better ways to um, keep their members gainfully employed. Yeah. Um, but that's 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 a different. We got to have a sectoral bargaining episode. Yeah. Um. So anyway, the 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 end all be all result of this thing is that the is that when Congress passed ARP with the three fifty billion in state and local aid, uh, they included some teeth in it thanks to all of the discourse uh, online. I'm sure there were some you know uh, rough and tumble players in the background really making it happen, but. Uh, so there are now teeth in the legislation that basically say, okay. State and local governments, you're eligible for this money. Um, you all have these dispersal amounts. Here's what it's going to be. Um, my understanding is is that state and locals are getting half of the money now, and then the other half is contingent on them not uh, cutting taxes, not using the money in any way to cut taxes. Oh, so, perfect. Well, but, but so. it's, it's going to be very interesting because, like, how do you – who is going to enforce this and how are they going to enforce it? Right. Like, you know, is there a deadline? And then like, Oh, I accidentally cut taxes like the day after the deadline, you know, after I got my, my next payment or whatever. These, these are the sort of bureaucratic questions that legislature legislators can just ignore. Right. Yeah. Let, let, let the bean counters figure it out. But, um, let me pull up this hilarious article. So, uh, so after all of this debate, oh, it's a blue state bailout. Oh, nobody needs all this extra money. And then Congress puts in this rule. Oh, okay, yeah, everybody's going to get this money, but you just can't cut taxes with it. You know, you got to use it for uh, new program development, you know, um, you know, replacing lost tax revenue, all these different things. Um, but yesterday or two days ago, it was reported that the Attorney General of Ohio, the Republican Attorney General of Ohio, is now suing the federal government uh, because of this new rule saying that it's an overstep of uh, congressional authority to require states to not cut taxes in exchange for getting this money. And the way they phrased it in their briefing was, the tax mandate thus gives states a choice. They can either have the badly needed federal funds or their sovereign authority to set state tax policy. So all of a sudden, these funds are now badly needed and not a blue state bailout anymore <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as you get the money. So it's this very funny thing. State, uh, states are faced with the, with the choice of having to find money in their couch cushions <laughs> or lose their sovereign authority. Yeah. Um, that, then that, that'll be interesting, too, because um, 
I mean, I'm not a lawyer or like a legal watcher, but uh, it's it's extremely well founded that the federal government can absolutely even things that wouldn't be allowed to compel the states to do. It can absolutely use um, make funds contingent on them doing something. Oh, totally. Right. That's, because liberalism whole... and it's. Yeah, liberalism and its legal tradition uh, is extremely, extremely concerned with the distinction between compelling someone in absolute terms and compelling them through economic, right? Uh, through economic factors, right? And, and, the... and so, if you're compelled by economics, that's fine. You just can't be compelled uh, explicitly. Um, and this, the and, big things were manifest in this way. Yeah, and the big ones in the fa in both of these, I think, were in the '70s when they happened, right? It was the the uh... Uh, federal government saying, "Hey, states, your drinking age has to be 21 now." Right, and that's why the drinking age is 21. Limit, it's your speed limit cap on on interstates has to be. I think it was like 75, which Montana said, "Fuck you, we're making it 85." Um, so what's the drinking age in Montana? Uh, <laughs> 14. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't know. Um, yeah, I actually, I, I don't know, I don't know about the the highway one. Yeah, I mean, this is another episode we should do. We, we got to do, we got to do a highways episode. We got to do a highway history episode. We got to get uh, one of these, um, you know, anti highway activists on here. Yeah, but but one of the one of the positive outcomes of the um, pandemic stimulus has been that they've been giving a bunch of money to transit. Uh, where previously highways had been, you know, the right. the money faucet would go to highways and, and transit would get crumbs. Right. And it forced um, transit advocates and transit agencies to think, uh, to, you know, support the transportation bill, because even though it's mostly going to highways, it's going, you know, a small percentage is going to, going to transit. And, you know, we need to fund, you know, Project X, Y, and Z, which may in many cases be perfectly good projects, but it's in a context of, the main competitive mo competitor mode to transit being funded at a much, much greater, um, much greater rate, and so this is now reversed, and also the precedent of operating funds, right? Could be very, very positive if, if it's maintained and made into a sort of permanent or semi-permanent thing. Totally. Um. So this money is starting to flow now, right? States, as far as I understand, are getting their first payments uh, shortly, or some have already gotten them. I know Illinois got theirs already. I got an insider in there who informed me uh, about some of this money starting to flow. Um, so there are a couple of interesting, you know, things that I think states and local governments could do with this money that are that are definitely pandemic related, and th this is. This is the key thing with this money is that the main rule that you have to meet that the treasury has set is that the uh, the funds must be spent on activity that can be justified as related to the pandemic. Um, and this was the case with, you know, with the CARES Act, with the coronavirus relief fund, which was like basically like the catch all fund for everything you know states were using crf money for all these various things it wasn't broken out into all these different programs um, but it's the same basic rule for the state and local money now and so and treasury is enforcing that treasury is enforcing that yes right Tre i mean treasury enforces uh yeah pretty much everything in uh you know i mean i'm, I'm sure uh, you know hhs and cdc are you know enforcing pro you know the policy on on the you know vaccine and testing and tracing stuff but uh the money's flowing from the treasury yeah and so that you know the treasury puts out guidance for like every different stream of fund like, every different stream of funding that that they're producing that congress is you know telling them to produce they're putting out guidance on interpretations of the legislation that congress passed saying like congress, yeah this is, congress this is a great example yeah this, this is a great example of how how bureaucracy is is um, making the law in a lot of ways. Like we learn in kind of civics class that the legislature makes the law, the executive branch enforces it, and the, and the judiciary interprets it. But in practice, the 
the executive bureaucracy is often more or less making and interpreting the law because they see what Congress said, and some state says, okay, well, can we use the money for this? Is, does this count as um, COVID-related? And, and the Treasury, you know, they'll have a meeting, and they'll kick it upstairs to whatever whatever level of, of uh, bureaucrat they feel needs to answer the question, and then they'll come back and say, uh, yes, it is, or no, it isn't, and in, in effect, defining what the law actually means in practice. Right. And obviously, like, right, yeah, you can, you know, and and you can, you know, try to challenge it in court, right? Like, and, and that's basically what, you know, the state of Ohio is doing right now, saying, like, you can't actually enforce this thing that tells us we can't raise taxes. Um, but obviously, like, you know, you get too complicated in cases like this and, like, how, you know, how long is it going to take for this case to be resolved? Six months, a year, two years? Like, what's the deadline on spending the money, right? Like, your case may take longer than the actual deadline you have on spending the money. And obviously, you know, there's stuff that needs to be, you know, funded right now. Um, so you're just wasting time. But anyway, so the particular thing I want to get to is this idea of municipal grocery stores. Um, so some uh, astute uh, followers of, uh, you know, the online discourse may remember... Sorry, I got a siren in the background. I'm just going to pause for a second. Can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. Less frontline bureaucracy at work. That is frontline bureaucracy at work. That's actually the CIA coming there. They're afraid of a new podcast, leftist podcast. And so we're they, being shut down. This is a free speech issue. Yeah. We gotta we're we're going to need to relaunch on Parler. <laughs> we got to get Glenn Greenwald on this. Glenn? Uh, so anyway, this this... This is something that I've like thought about for a while, and and it really uh, picked up a little bit of steam. Uh, I think this was like 2019. Um, there was a uh, town in Florida named Baldwin, and there it's like a you know small town, uh, it's like a you know 1,600 residents, um, and they had one grocery store in town and it was like you know some you know uh like franchise or whatever and the store announced one day like hey we're closing in like three months uh and the next grocery store you know and it's like a, a, you know uh sparse sparsely populated area and like the next grocery store wasn't for like 10 or 12 miles you know away and there's a lot of people that don't have cars uh and you know wouldn't be able to get to it and you know it's also you know, driving is difficult for a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and it's like, it's also like a very conservative town. Like, you know, it's Trump town and everything. But the mayor of the town, when this happened, had the, you know, pragmatic response of, oh, damn, that sucks. Well, can I just buy the building off of you then? And just like <laughs> keep everyone employed. And can you give me the phone number for the supplier yes. company? Yes, you can. Yeah, there because is nothing like, stopping you from doing that. <laughs> right. Because, you know, the, like the issue is that for whatever reason, right, the, you know, uh, cost was, you know, a little bit higher than revenues or cost was just, you know, neutral at revenues or maybe, you know, they were making money, but just not enough money for, uh, you know, whatever their business plan was. And so they shut down. And so the city was like, all right, fine. Like, we'll just run it at cost. Right. Like, we're not here to make really money like we just want everyone in the town to be able to go to the grocery store and not have to drive you know 25 minutes to like walmart or whatever so you just i mean just like very pragmatic you know it yeah and I, I read and I, I read i read some of the the articles that you that you had had uh sent me about um <clears throat> about this and similar similar things and they, they often go out of their way of emphasizing, you know, this isn't socialism. We're just doing what we need to do, which <laughs> is a very interesting parallel to when nominally progressive mayors of kind of blue cities will will sort of um, they'll they'll talk a good game about progressivism and then they'll just do the sort of neoliberal policies that they feel that they have to do in order to remain competitive in a global marketplace and blah 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 blah. Right. Uh, so they've essentially. It's just sort of the opposite happening where people who are ideologically opposed to socialism are 
doing socialism. They're socializing production or, or at least distribution. Um, and, but, but they're, but they're sort of appealing to that same kind of, well, we just got to do it. Right. You know, like it's not really a choice. They're sort of trying to kind of de-ideologic, um, de-ideologize it. Um, right. and I mean, for, for us and our listeners, I think it's important to understand that no, this is socialism. Maybe politically they can't say it, but um, this is 100% socialism. Uh, and there's probably an argument to say, well, no, you have to deny it's socialism because then people will be against it. But the thing is, is that if you convince them that this isn't socialism and it's okay because it's not socialism, then that makes it much easier to roll back. Uh, and it makes it much easier to say, okay, great. Um, you know, this is only for citizens and, you know, undocumented immigrants have to like, you have to show your green card at the door or something like that. Like it, it it lends itself to uh, either roll back or very sort of exclusionary um, positions. uh, If at least that's my kind of political belief, why it's, it's important that to say, no, this actually is socialism and, and actually socialism is good actually. Right. So you're right. And, and to the point about like, you know, big city progressive mayor, like, the typical response in in a in a you know big liberal city to like the problem of food deserts which is like a serious problem and and we have some a little bit of information on that that maybe I'll pull up in a second but like the typical response is oh damn there's no grocery stores in this like neighborhood that the city hasn't put any money into for the past 40 years for some reason i wonder why well okay here's my solution i'm going to give a 5 year property tax break to such and such company to bring a grocery store here. Great, grocery store comes. <laughs> they get a property tax break for five years and make a bunch of money. And then the property tax break <laughs> dies off and they're like, oh, I'm not making any money anymore. <laughs> Sorry, I gotta, I gotta hit the road. Right. And they at shut a down the store. Point. Right? Yeah, and at like a this, point, this you might as well just do it yeah. yourself. They, they even quoted uh, Matt Brunig in one of those pieces, which I thought was, <laughs> that was nice. He says basically there's an enormous power in saying, well, we can just do this this thing ourselves. Right. Um, um, and it, it reminded me it reminded me of this book uh, that, that I read a few years ago called uh, City Power by Richard uh, Schrager. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he's a professor of law at University of Virginia Law School. Um, and his basic argument is against this idea that uh, cities are uh, have to compete with each other in this sort of global marketplace, and that that's the main purpose of municipal government. Um, and he has a number of arguments drawing from the various traditions of kind of kind of city city thinkers, the sort of interdisciplinary world that I come from. Um, that it's essentially arbitrary which cities become the big hubs and which ones become secondary, and which ones are small towns. Like the the sort of just so explanations of oh well we cut taxes and that'll attract businesses is just there's not really a a a decent basis for that empirically or theoretically or historically um and so he argues instead that um that cities should basically help people local governments should help people weather those storms that are inevitable there are always going to be sort of cycles of boom and bust or cycles of um of you know investment and disinvestment by private capital that are really beyond the control of of a local government but what they can control is providing services and providing uh even redistribute redistributive policies to a certain extent um that can allow citizens their, their residents to weather those storms and this is a great example of that right right where it's it's and it, and it's also it also fits more into the uh into a city's toolkit uh, so one of the things I wanted to ask you is, um, if you were going to do this in a big city like Chicago, which is the one you know most about, um, and you know use this, because in these small towns, the mayor is personally getting involved, right? Totally. Uh, so they're small enough that the local government probably everybody's doing a little bit of everything, um, but in a large sort of siloed urban bu- municipal bureaucracy, you know, Lori Lightfoot is not going to personally be calling the suppliers of like, let's get the um, we need some more oranges. Get, right, exactly. <laughs> she, that, that's, she's going to delegate that. Right. So in a, for a big city like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, whatever, uh, where do you think that this would live, this initiative would live in the city government? Like right. what, what, depo- what, what municipal department or agency should be responsible for 
you know, fighting food deserts by buying up insolvent private stores and, and either running them municipally or converting them into co-ops or whatever. Right. I think my instinct is that ultimately this kind of falls in, in some division that does asset management or, or utility provision in some way. So like, and maybe the other option is like your, you know, most big cities have some type of, you know, business affairs department, right? You know, like when small businesses are applying for permits, they go to whatever this department mm -hmm. is called, right? Um, but yeah, because ultimately, like, what are what are the functions that you're that you'd be asking a municipal government to take on? You'd say, okay, you need to acquire this real asset, right? There's a there's a grocery store building and a parking lot over here, and and you want to you want to acquire it. Okay, so you need to go buy it, and then you need to hold it, right? And you're gonna, you know, you're going to have a mortgage, or maybe you're going to pay cash because Joe Biden just gave you fifteen billion dollars. Um, right, and you have to ask the treasury if it's COVID related. Right, and so the and uh, I guess we'll just jump into this now. So uh, the other impetus for this coming up, in particular, uh, you know, as a COVID related thing, is in in both Seattle and L.A. in the past month the uh the local governments have passed these ordinances requiring uh quote unquote hero pay right where you're like frontline workers such as grocery store workers uh the city is mandating for the extent of the pandemic that these these folks need to be getting like i don't remember if it was like three or five extra dollars an hour on top of their regular wage or whatever and so uh this passed in seattle like a month ago and and the kroger chain who operates some stores not by the name kroger but by some other brand name in seattle immediately closed two stores in uh quote unquote underperforming areas aka poor areas right uh so they just like shut down two stores immediately like during the pandemic and to, be, to be very clear here this this is a capital strike this, this oh capital completely strike. this is a capital they're like no this i don't is, want to pay extra capital. money stopping production and distribution right as a, to punish to punish uh workers for for uh trying to improve their conditions through through local government exactly yes which by the way is the is the basic sort of argument and it's almost framed as if it's not even there's as if as if there's nothing sinister about it this is why local governments municipal governments can't do these things is because well then capital will flee right exactly um you know, uh, although if for some reason it's never it's never uh, reported on as though they are the ones doing this, that's that a, a boardroom is, you know, has decided to hang these communities out to dry to screw over their workers in the same way that it's reported on that, you know, the teachers are leaving parents out to dry, you know, to screw the kids. Right. Um, whenever teachers go on strike, for example, the, the, that sort of playbook is not is not used in, 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 the, in the press, especially the local press. Right. Um, so I think it's important to name it as a capital strike. That, that is what it is. They're, they're doing an industrial action as a strategy to maintain their, their power as a class. Exactly, yes. And this is, and the same thing happened. LA then passed a similar ordinance like two weeks later. And also Kroger, uh, who operates some other grocery stores, not by the name Kroger, but by another separate you know brand name, because, you know, Kroger is a, uh, you know, a giant Leviathan. Um, uh, shut down three. So, so we should give it state power. <laughs> Kro no, we have a social contract with Kroger. <laughs> yeah, that's this is the this is the art. You just go up to Kroger and be like, "Come on, man, we live in a society." Um, no, you got you got to do that like 17th century illustration from 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 the Hobbes, uh, you know, of like this king made up of a bunch of little kings, except except the head is Kroger with a crown on it, and and it's made up of a bunch of little logos of Kroger's subsidiaries. Right. It's uh, got you know a sword in one hand and a scepter in the other, and, and, and it is the sovereign. Uh, so okay, so L.A. passes this law, and then Kroger shuts down three stores in L.A. Just like I mean obviously a capital strike they're just like fuck 100%. you you know and and um and it would be illegal to to fire people as retaliation but there's nothing illegal about closing an, a store completely right which is retaliation the exact same end result everybody just uh, everybody right. just got laid off once again the sort of liberal 
importance of the distinction between economic coercion and, and explicit coercion, right. which, you know, the victim of the coercion doesn't really notice a difference, but it's very important to the law and to philosophy well, and such. But the the employees, to be fair, the employees now, because there's a layoff, are are eligible for, for UI at this point. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah, but, so but that's still, yeah. at least better in that sense. But that doesn't. But it's still a capital strike, yeah. Right, but, and, and for contingent reasons that have nothing to do with. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's sort of, sort of um, specific to the situation that this is better totally. for them. There are other situations where it would make no difference or be worse if it were economic, right? right. As opposed to explicit coercion. Um, so, you know, obviously these particular cases are are you know very bad and and COVID related and. You know, I, I mean, I think there's there's a clear line that like, yeah, there's there's no reason that you couldn't justify that eminent domain acquisition of these of these real assets, these grocery store facilities, um, is a COVID related expense. You know, go go in, get them, bring those workers back to the table, give them the hero pay, um, and keep that store open, and then right, you know, the Obviously, in the longer term, the other thing that you want to look at, and, and this is where there's some really interesting data, actually from the USDA. Um, the USDA has like a, a like an economic research office, which um, produces some really interesting stuff. They don't. They basically just like take you know uh, various other government sources of data and like produce their own results that more or less translate into. Um, if not policy recommendations, at least like, look at this, this, the problem here is very clear. So they have this one called, uh, they have, they have basically a food desert, um, map where their measure of whether or not there's a food desert is, uh, if there's a census tract that is, uh, the, the median income in that tract is below a certain level. So it's a low income census tract and that tract is uh, greater in an urban area greater than one mile from the nearest um, grocery store or in a rural area greater than 10 miles from the nearest grocery store. And so there are 40 million people in the United States of America who are either in an urban area and more than a mile from a grocery store or in a rural area and more than 10 miles from a grocery store. And, and they call these census tracts LILAs, low income and low access. Yeah. And so this is nice like, little. from a planning perspective, like this is an easily solvable problem. It's like, you know, you just triangulate, okay, where do I need to plop down a grocery store to ensure that everyone in every city or rural area can go get food? <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah, anyway, and obviously, you know, you look at the maps and these, these low income, low access census tracts where people just don't, there's just no grocery stores um, are obviously exactly where you would expect, and they're you know they're you know basically map one to one with uh, you know economic segregation measures, racial segregation measures, uh, things like that, and uh, you know to be frank, it's it's a it's an easy win for for uh, you know municipal governments. Municipal governments manage all kinds of real estate assets. They have you know particularly big municipal governments. You know they have uh, properties all over. They have they have library buildings. They have utility infrastructure buildings. They have sewer right. buildings. They have uh, you know uh, uh, you know office buildings for different. Although departments. This, this would be a kind of new kind of asset for most. Totally right. I mean, you're also right. You for are most municipalities. Right, but in a very general sense, like you know what's happening, like you know cities also operate you know, run their own, uh, water, right? What happens? Okay. Right. You, you have these real estate assets, you provide some service, you generate some revenue, you try to self fund. Um, right. And, and you charge something, you charge a fee that's lower than the monopoly rate would have been right for Which that is, same service. Right. And, and the only difference here is that, you know, r other, rather than having, water meter people who like go out and like look at the water meter and are like oh yeah they used to like you know what 113 gallons of water you have somebody you know standing at a checkout counter saying oh yep they 
are purchasing six bananas, right? It's you know, it's uh, it's obviously like different type of activity, but but in a in a you know general like finance and management sense, like it, it doesn't make that big of a difference, right? Like you're still right, right. You're you're still managing some economic activity and and managing some real assets, and just you know. Keep now, in, 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 in terms of my earlier question of, of where would this live, there was there I had one idea about it. I'd be interested to hear what you think of it. What about um, the economic development shop that a lot of big cities have? Which oh, sure, under yeah. current right under under existing the actual existing capitalism is often focused largely on you know all the tax break stuff that we don't like. Right. So my thinking is kind of a two birds with one stone thing where we're redirecting those individuals who are likely going to remain employed by the city in some capacity to a more socially positive thing. And also it maybe gets into some of their core competencies of, of looking at private sector type or traditionally seen as private sector type development more so than a utility, which um, I mean, yeah, there's private sector utilities, but they're, you know, it's a, it's a, right. it's a different kind of thing. It's not as public facing. It's not, something that customers are walking into and out of it's not something that the private sector competes about and has lots of little decentralized right um things yeah i think you know and obviously like with an economic development shop like i mean I, even small cities like have these too you know but like uh in many cases the way those function is uh, Right, it, it, it there's like an outsourcing, right? Where the you know a city will say, "Hey, you're like they'll." I mean, they'll do like an RFP. They'll be like, "Hey, we want like some nonprofit to like operate this type of thing in this area, or we wa we want someone to develop this this land and do something interesting with it." And they get proposals, and like you know, you have that kind of stuff happen where you're like, you know, some nonprofit will come along and be like, "Hey, we're trying to open up." You know, we want to open up like this, you know, community grocery store and like, you know, put like 10 apartments on top of it or whatever. And like, you know, those things, those things do happen and like the city will, you know, fund it. Um, but, you know, on some, at some point, there is a huge benefit to basically having a giant backstop right which is the municipality that is like if this economically is not turning over enough revenue to make it sustain it doesn't matter we we will continue operating it because the cost of not having it is greater than the lost right. cost of of operating it you know uh below your revenues like and, and it's a huge and it's a huge shift too because it's it's thinking in terms of um, social utility rather than in terms of making the city competitive as a node of a, of a marketplace. Right, right. Um, so anyway, that's my uh, proposal for LA and Seattle. And, you know, I'm sure there's been grocery store, you know, there's always dinky little grocery stores doing, you know, and little shops doing capital strikes. If it's a social, yeah. socially necessary function, you just got a bunch of money. You have the power to go and buy that building, you know. And if they don't want yeah, to sell, you can eminent domain, and it's fine. And we should we should at least mention the possibility also of the the cooperative model, right? Um, which is is actually quite common for grocery stores in in the UK, because um, I think the Rochdale pioneers did grocery store like consumer co-ops. Um, you know, and of course you get you get your like the River West Co-op in, in Milwaukee or the you know the Park Slope Co-op in Brooklyn, but you absolutely can have a regular grocery store in a cooperative model. Right. The issue, you know, to just to say the, the big issue with a lot of these, especially consumer grocery co-ops, is that you know, like the consumer grocery co-op model is not going to be a quick fix for any of these closed down grocery stores in right. Seattle it's and LA not because. And it doesn't scale. It right, exactly. And and that's the issue is, you know, in this particular case is like speed, because like, you know, in these this neighborhood in Seattle where two grocery stores just shut down, it's like, okay, now okay, cool. Like these people just have no food now. So what do you want to do? Like 
give a co-op like three years to like put together all of the like foundation grants that they need to like, right. make it happen and like put together a board and like fight out all the culture war issues that you want to fight about on a on a co-op board like sure <laughs> like that's you know that's great you know i've, I've been on a sign me up i've been on a, a, a consumer some of my best friends are on co-op board i've been on a co-op board you know oh yeah. you've done it yourself okay so you know you know you yeah. know how it is um yeah so no like, i, I think i think we're on the same i think we're on the same page about this i just didn't want it to go unacknowledged oh yeah um and and even if the the city's taking the lead that can be an end game no, totally. Right. Maybe that the, the, the city sets these things up and ultimately devolves them to co-ops over over the long term. Right. Or or you know the other, th like, you know, where I come at it from is like, you don't need these, you don't need each individual little co-op or nonprofit to like have their own like underwriting and like financial analysis team to like manage all that stuff like. That's what the bureaucracy is like for. Like it is right. you know, the bureaucracy is like a service that should work for people who want right. to do these things. You want to like manage assets, you want to like manage your revenues like it should cool. be the back end let, for social services. Right. Let the municipal bureaucracy do that and you know, when it comes to like day-to-day -day management and like running the operations like yeah, hell yeah, like give your operating contract to like your community co-op. And they like will make the decisions about you know what products are the right ones, you know, to bring in for that neighborhood or like whatever, you know. Um, Definitely. So. And that that I think is the the sweet spot, um, yeah. and gets to the the strengths of bureaucracy while addressing the the maybe kind of avoiding its weaknesses. Something that you were that you had you had told me offline. Um, I forget how you phrased it, but it was basically offline. like that. I don't, but I don't go offline. I don't know what you're talking about. Never log off. <laughs> never stop posting. <laughs> but you were, but it, it was something that you were saying that was, um, you know, this sort of place to the strengths of bureaucracy of, of being this big thing that can handle all this massive administrative stuff. Um, but then the actual provision of service can be more localized. Right. Right. Place to the strengths of both. Um, well, I think that's all we got for, uh, you folks today, um, unless, uh, Mayor Seidel, you have any, uh, kind of closing thoughts? No, that's it. That gets to some of the things that, uh, that I definitely wanted to raise. Um, and so far I've not been fired. Nice. Yeah. We got to do an update every episode. <laughs> so far. The, voter, the voters of Milwaukee of 1912 have not yet punished you for your um, foray into podcasting. Don't worry. My boy Hone is going to take over. Yeah. My boy Dan Hone. Uh, okay. So, yeah, just some housekeeping. Um, so you can follow the pod on, uh, on Twitter. You can search for Bureaucrats Anonymous. If you don't know how to spell bureaucrat, then you can't follow us because I'm not going to spell it for you. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not our job. That's yeah, not my department. That's not my department. The spelling department. <laughs> that's yeah. You need to take this form over to <laughs> philology. Yeah. Which is actually a division, not a not a department. Yeah. It's important that you know that. Oh no! Oh no! Oh, no. That's